0: He was the right worker for that job, and that's what leaders have to do. You can't just pick somebody that was good before. You have to pick someone that's really a match for the job. That's what Nehemiah did. That's what good leaders do.
1: He knows you by name. He loves you. He cares about you. He's in the business of rebuilding broken people and to redeem people, and he accomplished that on Calvary once for all.
3: Welcome to In Context. We are so glad you are joining with us. My name is Hannah Seymour. I'm your co host sitting here in the studio with Michael Easley. How are you doing today, Dad? I'm doing
1: great. Great to be back recording.
3: Good to be back with you, too. We are now in our fourth episode. Of the Nehemiah series. Our very first couple of episodes, we started with an introduction into Nehemiah. You gave us a great definition of leadership, Dad. Tell us that one more time.
1: (laughs) It's not the shortest one, okay? (laughs) Leadership is the process of influencing people toward godly principles and practices. So we're trying to help them think and do through biblical wisdom that is demonstrated in attitude, activity, and ability. It's a bit cumbersome, but I think it encompasses leadership Is not just getting a job done. There's influencing folks to do things, to think correctly, to proceed accordingly, and to have the right attitude about why they're doing it. That's
3: good. And you will really be unpacking that definition over and over and over throughout this (laughs) Nehemiah series. I didn't mean that in a bad way. (laughs) We all need to hear things. What do they say? At least eight times before it sticks.
1: And and that one's so long, we... I got to hear more. 28 times. 88 <laughs> yeah. times.
3: Well, so then the next two episodes, uh, you took a look at Nehemiah chapter one and two, and we heard from some of our friends who are incredible leaders. We've heard from Dave Ramsey, Stephen Mansfield, Janet Parshall, Coach Les Steckle from the NFL, several folks. I won't keep listing them all, but... All of that to say, if you are just joining us for the first time on this episode, go back, start with the first episode that is called Nehemiah and the Leadership Process, because all of this builds on itself. So today, where are we headed in this episode,
1: Dad? This is a chapter of the Bible people skip. Ah, I love when you teach those. (laughs) Yeah, well, let's hope so. But when you come to a genealogy or a long list of names, first of all, they're too hard to pronounce. Secondly, we don't know who these folks are. And frankly, it's just, well, why should I read all those names? Um, So we won't go into each one, but we'll try to do a synthesis of how important it was that Nehemiah recorded these individuals and the jobs they were assigned.
3: Well, before we jump into that, throughout the series, we are going to be offering a handful of different resources that you can go to michaelincontext.com slash leadership process and download for free. So, Dad, what's the first resource that will be up on the website as of today?
1: This is a page from Dr. Don Campbell's book, Nehemiah, Man in Charge, and he lists 21 factors he calls necessary characteristics for an effective leader. And just to give you a sampling, he says he established a reasonable and attainable goal. Secondly, he had a sense of mission. Third, he was willing to get involved. And none of these are that you know, new or illuminating. Sure. They're just really good reminders of what it means to be a leader. And by the way, these apply in your own personal management of your time and your job and your lifestyle as well
3: yeah i love resources like this i have in the past printed things off like this and stuck it up next to my computer or on my bulletin board just things for me to see and be reminded um, as i'm going throughout my own day managing folks leading other people well with that let's go ahead and jump into the text nehemiah chapter three
1: Well, as we ended chapter 2 of Nehemiah, verse 18, we read, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words that he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. In chapter 3, it begins with, Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priests. I find it important to note, Let us arise and build is the rallying cry, And then in chapter 3, we see the high priest arising with his brothers and priests to build the sheep gate. It was Peter Drucker, I think, who said, when you have a lot of issues, a lot of problems in front of you, you have to line them up one at a time. My personal mantra is, you do the next thing, because when you have a major project in front of you, it becomes overwhelming, at least for some of us it does, and big projects for me always seem to have a life of their own. But, you know, you just have to do the next thing, one thing at a time. Now, what we're going to see in chapter 3, and from a high overview, a synthetic look at the chapter, are a number of repetitive terms and a progression. If you took out a map of the wall at Nehemiah's time, it's going to be a counterclockwise move around this ruined city wall, and we're going to see how sequentially and organizationally Nehemiah instructs his folks to rebuild the wall. Let me note also, in the beginning of chapter 3, a high priest is mentioned. A high priestly role was key to one thing, worship in Israel. Once in a lifetime, the Levitical order went through a process to select the high priest. That designation made him the one who could go in and have this closest connection, this closest sacrificial relationship with God. Don't miss the overview of this book. They're rebuilding the wall so they can worship God in the place where he put his name. That's the whole reason of this book, is to rebuild that wall, to reestablish worship. Well, let's step back just a minute and notice number one, delegation. Nehemiah, in a sense, is delegating individuals who live near a portion of the wall or who have ownership in a portion of the wall. Again, verse one, Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Haniel. Now, why do you start with the high priest? Obviously, he's leading the worship. Notice he's building the sheep gate. If we don't slow down, sometimes we miss the obvious. Why do you have a sheep gate into the city of Jerusalem? This was the path where the sacrificial animals were brought more than likely about eight miles south of Jerusalem into the temple complex where, for sacrifice so think about it from the high overview what's the first thing you're gonna do well if this is about reestablishing worship maybe we ought to have the worship gate the worship access the priests who are over that reconstructing that wall so they can bring these sacrificial animals in the designated gate known as the sheep gate consecration is a big process we won't go into in this study but it means simply to set something apart And so they're setting this gate apart for a very precise reason so they can bring these animals in that will be sacrificed for the worship of yahweh elohim derek kidner in his fine little commentary on ezra and nehemiah writes this catalog of largely forgotten names and places reveals an extraordinary feat of organization and concerted action so number one let's review we're talking about delegation Nehemiah is going to pick individuals who have some ownership or some allegiance to the area of the wall they're rebuilding. For example, chapter 3, verse 2, next to him, he's referring to the high priest, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri built. And on this process goes. This little phrase, next to him, we just read this in English and kind of scurry over it. It's found 28 times in this one little chapter. It's the Hebrew word yad. It's a preposition, and it probably just means next to him. (laughs) But when you look at the root of the word yad, it means your arm, your forearm, or your hand. So the language is giving us a very beautiful flow of the guy right next to me. You know, we can almost bump forearms because we're working side by side is the idea. So we're seeing a delegation we're seeing ownership of individuals, in this case, priest in chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll see them again in a moment. So notice organization, delegation, and planning. The second term that jumps off the page as I read the chapter, and as you will too, is the word repair, made repairs, or repaired. Thirty-eight times those phrases in some form or fashion show up. Made repairs, repaired, repaired the wall. So they're doing something. This goes back to a leader who's organizing people, who's delegating them to do something. Verse 4, next to him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakkaz, made repairs. And on and on it goes, made repairs, next to him, made repairs. So we're seeing this counterclockwise progression of individuals, some who we know very little about, some we know more about, who are hand-to-hand, shoulder-to-shoulder, doing the work that God had given them. One of the things that stands out in this chapter to me is the systematic organization. Now we've talked about delegation, we've talked about planning, but there's a systematic method to the madness of this text in a sense. Because not only are we going counterclockwise, not only has he delegated individuals that have ownership, but we see this systematic in the way the language of the text takes us. And let's take a sidebar from this and ask the question, When it comes to leadership, when it comes to leading people in their lives, what are we doing? We're making repairs. We're fixing something that was broken. There's a systematic process. If your car's not working, you have to take it to someone who has knowledge. It has to be diagnosed. You have to perhaps replace parts. It has to be worked on. Uh, The same is true in our lives. If we have struggles in our marriage and our work, we need people to help us diagnose what's going on, to make repairs, to adjust things. It really is a good metaphor of all life. The Christian life is making repairs of our sin, of confession, of repentance, of going back and trying to do things well the next time. That is, in a sense, the Christian life. So this rebuilding the wall is a pretty good parallel of the Christian life and how we're always in the process of growing and maturing and making repairs. Everything we buy in life wears out. Everything we buy becomes old and outdated. These are good reminders to me of the wall, obviously disrepair because they had not maintained it. And so now they're making repairs. At the higher level, it takes a leader to appoint people to do the right thing with the right tools, the right abilities, the right ownership. So we're seeing this little snapshot of names that we don't necessarily know much about, but they're systematically involved in making repairs that were unique to to their job, their function, their skill set. Another observation as you go through it is how often things like gold and perfume is mentioned. Seems strange that you'd have people that were goldsmiths and people that made perfumes would be listed in the reestablishment of the wall. Of course, we cannot know this bulldogmatically, but my suspicion is it all had to do with what would be required to have temple instruments for sacrifice. See, in order to have a sacrifice, you had to have the implements and the tools that God instructed Moses, that Moses then handed off to Aaron for the priest to build. And the Levitical priest had a very sophisticated, complex job from the tools that the animal was sacrificed with, to what parts of the animal's entrails were removed, what was burned, what was refuse, what was done with the ashes. All of these tools. Basins were designed by God, given to Moses, given to Aaron for his priest to build. So we have these goldsmiths mentioned in here. They weren't making jewelry. Uh, these goldsmiths, more than likely, again, this is somewhat speculative, would be involved in the tools that were then going to be required for sacrifice to be reinitiated once the complex was built and protected by the wall. The same with the perfumers. There were certain spices and herbs that were set aside for worship of God, and they were only to be used for that. If they were used improperly, there were sometimes grave consequences. So when you read these lists of them making walls, goldsmiths, perfumers, and so forth, keep in mind this more than likely had to do with the implements, the tools that were going to be used once they were able to offer sacrifice again. As we go through chapter 3, the Levites pop up again in verse 17. After him, the Levites carry out repairs under Rum, the son of Bani. It's an obscure reference, but I think what we're meant to see is in chapter 3, verse 1, the priests are working on the sheep gate because that's where the animals for sacrifice came in. And it seems as though they finished their job. And so now they're deployed to help others as they continue making these repairs counterclockwise around the wall. By the time we get to the end of the chapter, we read, Between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants carried out repairs. Chapter 3, verse 1 begins with the sheep gate. Chapter 3, verse 32 ends with the sheep gate and the goldsmiths and the merchants. So we've got this parentheses, if you will. It seems as though this counterclockwise methodology, this organization, this delegation was simple, was transferable, People were hand-to-hand, side-to-side, working alongside to accomplish the rebuilding of the wall. Now, let's end where we begin. These names are not all that well-known to us. Uh, if, if you're a pretty good Bible student, you're a BSF or a preceptor, if you're one who studied scripture well, you may know some of the stories mentioned here. More than likely, we don't know that much about individuals. But I find it striking, no matter if it's a genealogy or a chapter such as Nehemiah 3, Remember, individual people are important to God. If these names are recorded for all eternity, and you and I will meet them someday, uh, they're recorded as part of the wall-building process. It was important for God's people to remember them. That applies to leaders today, doesn't it? Don't we all like to hear a leader call us by our name? Isn't it impressive when someone remembers our name? How many times have you remembered someone's name and it impresses them? I think it was Del Carnegie who said the most important word a person ever hears is his own name, her own name. Well, that's a good lesson for any of us, whether we're in leadership or not. People are important to God, important enough that their names are recorded for all time, for all to read. Your name's important. You're important to God. I'm important to God. He knows our name. He knows all about us. He loves us. And in this process of maturing in the Christian life, if we're using this metaphor, this leadership process from the book of Nehemiah, I would encourage you, you got to make repairs. You have to put your hand to the plow. You have to work with others. You may need those who can help you diagnose what's going on in your own hand, in your own heart. You may need others to come alongside you. In fact, we all do. And this rebuilding of the wall, remember, was to reestablish worship. The whole point of the book of Nehemiah was to replace the wall so they could worship where Yahweh had put his name. That was the only place they could offer sacrifice in the way God intended. Fortunately, Christ has come. Fortunately, there's no need for a temple complex anymore. Fortunately, any and all can put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. He knows you by name. He's in the business of rebuilding broken people and to redeem people and he accomplished that on Calvary once for all. God knows your name. He loves you. He cares about you. A good lesson to be reminded of individually and a good lesson for us as leaders as we serve and minister alongside other people to know their name, to encourage them, to help them along their path. You
3: know, dad, the name piece is really interesting. How important, truly knowing other folks' names, people using your name really matters. I really early on in my job at Belmont, it was actually my third day on the job. I got to meet Vince Gill and Amy Grant. And I mean, you know, meeting those two folks for me was (laughs) like so huge. I was trying really hard to act casual and not be starstruck. And be normal. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But I met them and then, probably two, three years later, Amy came back on campus and we were doing something else with her and she knew my name. And I I mean, I thought, I mean, certainly she probably had just asked someone right before she walked up to me or whatever. But I later asked a friend who worked closely with Amy often and they said, yeah, actually Amy keeps notes and she keeps records. So when she went to Belmont University and, you know, let's say that was April of 2010, she wrote down, you know, the the folks that she had met and their names. And so then when she went back a couple of years later, she goes, she flips back to her records. Okay, went to Belmont this day. And I met Hannah easily at the time. And I met, you know, and so when she shows up at a location where she's been before, she's already reviewed folks' names.
2: I mean, how crazy is
3: that?
1: (laughs) It's it's intentional. It speaks a lot. And, you know, sometimes we're starstruck not just with performers or, or even leaders, but just people of influence. There's an elder at the church that your mom and I attended when we were in seminary named Dr. Alan Hull. And I'll never forget running into him in an airport many years later Uh, we were going different directions. I said, Dr. Hall. And we talked for maybe, oh, three minutes. And he's a person who faithfully prays for me. And he, first thing he said was, I've been praying for you about such and such. Well, I had forgotten (laughs) that I had asked him to pray for this thing. And the fact that he remembered, and it just blows you away. The Influence leaders have by knowing people's names, knowing about them, putting others more important than ourselves. And uh, one of our friends that we were uh, fortunate to to grab some time with was General Lauren Reno, a three-star retired Air Force general. A prince of a man and his book is called 10 leadership maneuvers and we got him on the phone and asked him some questions and he he gave us a neat perspective about the chain of command obviously Mm -hmm. being military the chain upward the chain laterally and the chain down and let's hear some of his comments about how important it is to know these people to rub shoulders with the people with whom you work and lead
0: My first starting point would be to think of Jesus and the way he identified with his disciples. I've been reading in Luke recently, and in the first nine chapters, it was either two or three times when the scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, whoever was asking the disciples specific questions, the text says, and Jesus answered and gave them the response. So he was right there and identifying with him so much that he took the question intended for them, and responded back to them. In my own leadership, I think of uh, identifying with people you influence in three ways. One is down the chain, and that's the one that's thought of most often. And I would, I would regularly put on my schedule footprints, just the word footprints. And that meant I was going to walk out of my office and out to where my people were in a different building on a flight line, and I would just walk up and talk to them and see what they were doing. I had no agenda. I didn't announce where I was going because I didn't want their bosses to show me what they thought I wanted to see. I wanted to see and hear what was really going on. So footprints down the chain, across the chain is really important for identifying with people that you influence. Uh, Like Nehemiah, um, I had a a close friend, his name is Gary Ritchie, and Gary went with me to Brazil on a mission trip. Now, he's contemporaneous with me. He was a civilian in the Air Force, but a wonderful leader, strong, powerful leader, and I took him on a mission trip with me because I wanted to identify with him in that way. And then seldom talked about is up the chain. Uh, I remember one time at the Pentagon when the chief of staff of the Air Force asked if he could come and see me And when I was going on a trip and my secretary told me about this, and sure enough, he wanted to come to my office to see me because he wanted to ask me if he could have the services of one of the people that worked for me. The irony is everyone that worked for me worked for him, and he didn't have to ask. But he not only asked, he came to my office to ask. And, and that was a wonderful demonstration of identifying with the people that you influence. He showed me how a leader can be deferential in an appropriate way.
3: Well, I just loved what General Reno had to say about identifying with the people that you influence. Another part of the leadership process that I think we can take from Nehemiah chapter three is this idea of enlisting the right workers.
1: Indeed, and as we look at Nehemiah's assignments, I think it's important. These workers were working next to their home in some cases, in areas of their skill set in some cases, but also in places that they had ownership, as we talked about with the priest, for example. Now this isn't just delegation, it's not just assigning a project. It's an incredible ability to tap in to know people, what motivates them, and to say, can you do this job? You know, from my vantage, it's the most difficult part of leadership, whether you're working with volunteers or paid workers. You've got to find people that have ownership, commitment, work ethic, a willingness to contribute to a team, and, you know, an I'm willing to work to help attitude. In some ways, they're pretty easy to spot, It's my perception, however, There are fewer of these kind of people. So from a leadership aspect, it's difficult to find people that are willing to say, hey, I want to work, I want to help, I want to make that project successful. Now, every leader I know hates it when someone says to him or her, well, you know, I don't know if I can do that, or that's not my job, right? I don't want to do that. That's become a common trend today, working with people in any kind of group. On the other hand, leaders love it. When someone says, wow, that's a tall order, but what about this? Or, I think we can do that if we do this. Hannah, I think the other side of that is leaders can shirk from asking people to work a little harder. They're unwilling to evaluate people. It's harder to confront someone, especially in this real politically correct environment about hurting people's feelings. And it's all about me. But I will tell you, as a leader, when you find people that say, That's tough. I don't know how, but what about this and what about that? That's what we're looking for. And so leaders and the leadership process is can you find the right workers? Uh, It's an old axiom, getting the right people on and off the bus. I think it was Fred Smith that said long ago, the time to fire someone is before you hire them.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And I think it's not just picking the right people. But as a leader, you have to know your people and know their skill set and strengths. And I've certainly worked for leaders who knew me really well and knew when to grab me and say, Hey, I want you to, I want you to run point on this because they knew I had the ability. And I've also worked for leaders who didn't know their team. And I think, you know, the company suffered because the right folks weren't navigating and, and leading the processes that, that they were most skilled to do
1: evaluation processes have become either so sophisticated or non-existent and uh, I've tried for years and I won't say I've succeeded (laughs) I've tried for years to say what are the three things this person needs to accomplish what are their three skill sets the three areas they need to improve or need to work on we used to say strengths and weaknesses but you can't say weaknesses anymore because you hurt somebody's (laughs) feelings so what do you need to work on and even in my own planning, I have got to go back to what are the things that only I uniquely can do. Mm-hmm. And I've got to have the humility and courage to say, I need help with X. Yeah. I need help with Y. Yeah. This isn't my skill set. Um, one thing we read about in leadership studies are, is a thing called Elasticity. You can stretch a person to a degree, sure. um, but you can't stretch them past their competency. Mm. So if you've got a quiet person on staff or a quiet volunteer, sometimes it's good to throw them a task and say, would you be willing to, mm-hmm. and you're going to learn about your person yeah are they willing to take the risk or they say no I can't do that or I've never done it before but um the the profiles like the disc and the fire OB and all these different tools we can use to help people assess their strengths and gifts but at the end of the day I think the leader has to be the one that comes alongside raises the flag as Nehemiah walked the wall He knew these people. He knew when to encourage them, when to confront them, when to help them. And that's what we're all looking for, right? Right. We love having an attaboy. Yep. And we also love saying, would you be willing to try this? Yep. And unless we're asked, unless we lead that as a manager, a leader, Mm -hmm. unless as an employee, someone who works and reports to someone, how will we ever know if we're uh, being used to the best?
3: Yeah, that's right. Well, let's listen to another piece of your conversation with General Reno, where he talks about what enlisting the right workers looked like in his own job as a general.
0: Someone wrote a book on uh, leadership and the importance of getting people on the bus and then getting them in the right seat. And there are some people that are just magnificent at some things and not very good at other things. And and so the wisdom of the leader is to get the trowel in the guy's hand that can really trowel and get the wheelbarrow in the hands of the guy that can really wheelbarrow. In the case of Nehemiah, I think of Jesus enlisting the right workers. You know, he had a lot of people that followed him and then there were the 70 and then there were the 12. And then you think of the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. So there were the three of the 12 that were the closest. When I was at Tinker Air Force Base, uh, we competed with some commercial firms for some workload to move from one base to another uh, in excess of $10 billion, as I recall. But the guy that organized our team, he pulled men and women, young and old, experienced and eager. I mean, a whole skill set. Some were financials, some were engineers, uh, some were supply specialists, some were logisticians, some were transportation. And he he didn't just go to one group or one kind of people. He went across the spectrum and assembled a team that was able to write a proposal and then execute it. I can't help but think of when you talk about enlisting the right workers, that team at Tinker Air Force Base. I also think of the time when I was a, a commander in technical training and I was looking for a squadron commander in a certain squadron. And uh, back in that day, I was able to reach out to about whoever I wanted. And I interviewed almost 20 people and finally picked one that had a great skill set, uh, had a good track record. We had a, a skill set that was really tailored for the flexible and broad responsibilities that that particular squadron is going to have. His name is Charlie, and he turned out just to be a wonderful commander, got promoted to colonel, and went on to great things in the Air Force. But he, he was the right worker for that job, and that's what leaders have to do. You can't just pick somebody that was good before. You have to pick someone that's really a match for the job. That's what Nehemiah did. That's what good leaders do.
3: Well, you have to love General Reno's thoughts on appropriately identifying with the people that you influence. And to remind everyone, we have that free resource from Donald K. Campbell, his list of 21 factors of Nehemiah, a man in charge, and actually his number 14 is he identified himself as one with the people. We did not plan that. But you can go to michaelincontext.com slash leadership process and download that PDF for free. And I hope that will be, or a helpful resource for you to take a gander at 21 things and think, how am I doing that? Am I identifying with the people I influence? Am I praying at crucial times? Just some great things. Well, we will be back next week looking at Nehemiah chapter four. Thanks for joining us.
2: Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.